Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Tamara Hajat, and I am a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. And my name is Jason Silverman, and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta. So today we have the great pleasure of being joined by Dr. Mel Hyman, former editor-in-chief for the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition, or JPGN, and current editor-in-chief for its sister journal, JPGN Reports. In addition to that role, which he held for a decade, Dr. Hyman is a professor in pediatric gastroenterology and nutrition endowed chair, director of the UCSF T32 training program in pediatric gastroenterology and nutrition, and vice chair for faculty development at the University of California at San Francisco. Today we're going to take this opportunity to talk to Dr. Hyman about his experiences as an editor-in-chief, including his insights into medical publishing, as well as advice for aspiring and experienced published authors alike. We're really looking forward to this conversation. On to the show. So, Dr. Hyman, thank you so much for, for joining us on the Balsons podcast. My pleasure. For our listeners who don't know you, most of our listeners will know you, but for, for those that don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Give me a very long sentence. <laughs> um, so I am a pediatric gastroenterologist. I am at the University of California in San Francisco, where I've been my entire career. I have a particular focus on pediatric inflammatory bowel disease, pediatric nutrition, and I've always enjoyed doing procedures, which is part of the reason I got into gastroenterology in the first place. And I've been involved in program development for pediatric gastroenterology at UCSF in particular, but with a lot of my national activities, uh, more in a, in a broad sense. And also one of my main loves, if you want to call it, is uh, mentorship. I've always enjoyed training uh, the fellows in our field as well as medical students and residents. That's great. Can you tell us a book that you've read or a podcast that you listen to or a TV show or a movie that you recently watched that you recommend for our listeners? My favorite movie of all time is the Star Wars series. I watched Star Wars when I was uh, an intern. My senior resident, when I went to see it, my senior resident had already seen it 13 times, so I was behind the eight ball right from the start. But I love that series, and most recently now with Mandalorian, that's been continuing, and I've got all three of my boys and my wife also involved in Star Wars. So, Do you have a Star Wars collection? Oh, yeah. We have, uh, you know, my wife actually collected Star Wars toys when they were first coming out and still has them in the unopened box. She thought it'd be a good investment. But, you know, what I warned her, as I said, there are probably so many of those out there that uh, people can grab them all over the place. So I, I don't think as an investment, it was great, but we love having those around. All right. Well, switching gears a little bit, obviously one of the major roles that you've had over the the last decade is uh, is as editor-in-chief for JPGN and now JPGN Reports. Can you share with us and our, and our listeners how you first became involved in this editorial role? This is a long story that goes back to when I was in grammar school. I enjoyed 
mapping out sentences and doing the grammatical pieces of it, but I really didn't like the writing piece of it. But I really learned, uh, I think, when I was doing my fellowship and uh, as a young faculty member, the tricks of writing and how writing really is a very important part of communicating and how you write and how you select your words and how you how you put together a manuscript that you hope is published eventually uh, is very important. And so I became um, enamored with the whole process and now look at writing as, as being a very important way to communicate. The um, other thing I really like about it is um, it, it also provides a good platform, I guess you could call it, for mentoring because you know, teaching younger faculty and fellows how to write a good paper is, I think, as important as teaching them how to do the research itself. So, and the same thing goes with writing grant applications or applications to be a journal editor. So that's really how I got into it. I'd like if I, if I could just to maybe backtrack a tiny bit. When we were talking about getting first getting involved in JPGN in the editorial role. Um, was that just a, an open call application for you, or or did you uh, have maybe a peer or a mentor who kind of tapped you on the shoulder and said, "I think I think you'd be really good for that role." How did you actually land where you did? So. About a year and a half before I took over as the editor-in-chief, there was a call for, for the position, and somebody else contacted me, including one of my peers at work, and uh, actually a couple people, and said, you, you'd probably do a good job for this, why don't you think about it? And I thought about it some, and I thought, yeah, this would be an interesting move in, as I'm going forward in my career. And um, and then the more I thought about it, the more people I talked to, the more support I got for the idea. And so I decided to go ahead with it. My original application had been to ride on the coattails of what others had done. And that was to use your own faculty as your core associate editors. But when um, it was reviewed, one of the critiques was, you know, now we're in an age where we don't have to have everybody in the same office. And so it allowed me then to expand and to add expertise from outside of our own unit. And it worked out terrific. Are there any aspects of inner workings of academic publishing that surprised you when you first started the role or over time? There are several areas that surprised me. One is that there are a lot of people who don't know how to write, and I was surprised at some of the submissions we would get. Another is that we have a lot of difficulty with peer review. It can be first difficult to find peer reviewers to review different submissions that come to the journal. It also can be uh, difficult to find reviewers who do a thorough job. We've tried to accommodate reviewers by putting guidelines on our website, and uh, there are some programs now that have been suggested and I hope instituted soon where senior members in our field will help some of the younger members uh, go through the review process so that the younger members will learn how to provide uh, good reviews on their peers' manuscript. I think the other piece that surprised me when I first started were some of the um, unethical behaviors that a few, very few, but a few of our peers have demonstrated. Uh, when I first started as the journal editor and immediately was 
hit with two problems. One was somebody who was fabricating results. A bunch of his papers had to be retracted. And the second one was somebody who actually plagiarized another paper. And I was worried since then. I mean, you can imagine this is my first two months as, as the JPEGAN editor. And uh, in the first couple months, I had these on my plate. And I thought, oh, my God, what's this next? At that time, I was a, it was a five-year commitment. What are the next five years going to throw at me? Fortunately, there weren't very many after that. But one of the things that has always been on my mind is how do you find these? I mean, we in some ways we were lucky. Sometimes it takes a uh, one of the associate editors to note some kind of discrepancy in the manuscript that didn't seem to add up or some suspicion because of something that's written in the manuscript or somebody says this is a sub-study of another study and so you start digging around looking at what those are. There are some programs that we can use to determine whether a significant portion of a manuscript is taken from another either publication or another manuscript, but those are expensive, and because we have so many manuscripts coming in, we can't do that for every single paper. You talked about sort of how you had a bit of a, a rocky start in the sense of having some negative issues that you had to tackle right out of the gate. Have you seen the academic publishing industry as, as a whole change over the last decade? What are the changes that you've seen uh, over your career as, a, as an editor-in-chief? And, and also, where do you think things are heading over the next decade? Great question. So one of the things I've loved about being the editor-in-chief is each year, the publisher invites all of the editors-in-chiefs uh, that, in this case, are in Lippincott and Walters Kluwer, which is the umbrella organization, to a, a meeting in Philadelphia where they have roughly 60, 70 editors-in-chiefs from all different journals, all medical journals, by the way, and uh, a couple of hundred uh, local people who are involved in the publishing business. And there's a real nice interchange of ideas, and the, one of the opening speakers always gives it overview of what's happening in the publishing industry. So that's been a very helpful, gives you a very helpful perspective on what's happening in, in the industry. And the things that have stood out for me are, number one, the number of journals that have popped up, especially in the last 10 years since I've been editor-in-chief. The number of submissions, our own journal has seen a huge rise, especially this last year because of uh, I think people have had more time to write during the COVID period. But there's been a gradual uptick of the number of submissions we've had. Along with this uptick of submissions and journals, there's been more and more predatory journals, which has been a problem. Uh, these are journals that uh, will publish anything that uh, really make an effort to solicit your work, and uh, sometimes peer review can be very cursory. And the idea there is they're just trying to publish and make money on ads or whatever it is that their goals are. So that's been an issue. And then the other, I think, big change in the last 10 years has been social media. Uh, we've seen a lot more. Well, when I first started, there wasn't that much of a social media presence. And then we started developing a Facebook page and a Twitter group that has really expanded the reach of our journal. And as you know, Jason, since you're involved with that, with Charlie Vanderpool and more recently John Pohl, who's helping with our new journal, there's been a lot of push to develop these ways of communicating with everybody else, other than just having a website, which the journal does have. And I think those are probably the biggest changes I've seen in the last 10 years. 
And then where, where do you think things are going moving forward? There's always the question of, is our journal going to stop printing a print version of the journal, or are we just going to have an online? And so far, because when we do surveys of our readership, at least half the readership says they still want to have the paper journals. Uh, the publisher feels that they don't want to stop it. And the other reason that it's helpful to have a paper journal is that uh, advertisers tend to like that because they can clomp on some kind of ad on the cover or inside the cover that uh, actually is helpful both to them because they're willing to pay for it and to our societies and the publisher because uh, they will derive some revenue from doing that. But I think at some point we probably will go completely paperless. Open access has become another issue. This is where the papers as they're published become available to anybody in the world. This is becoming more and more popular in Europe. There's a big move to make everything open access. In our country, we're a little bit behind on that, but I do see that happening at some point where, where we will have more and more open access. One of the problems there is the cost of publishing an open access article, and I think our societies have done a wonderful job for our new journal, Japan Reports, uh, in that they're subsidizing any articles that are being published. It is an open access online only journal, and our societies are subsidizing these for members who publish in that journal. You know, you've mentioned social media already with respect to JPGN and full disclosure, I recently took over as social media editor for JPGN, but uh, in fairness, <laughs> thank you. Uh, but in fairness, Dr. Hyman was on our, our guest list for a lot longer before I even applied for the position. But, uh, you know, thinking more broadly, how do you view the role of social media in academia, whether it's in terms of dissemination of academic work or self-promotion or networking? Social media is a very important means of letting people know what is in our journal. And I think that um, it helps both informing the public, informing our readership of what's there. It also helps link people together because uh, when people are, when you have researchers looking for others doing similar work, sometimes that's how they find out. You know, they find out, hey, this publication came out. There's, like I said earlier, there's so many uh, new journals out there that you just can't keep up with everything that's being published. And I think social media is one way where you can get a quick glance at what is coming in JPEGUN or JPEGUN reports. So I think, it, I think it provides a wonderful means of communicating. That's great. So you also mentioned that some people are able to write a little bit more during COVID times, and some people might have um, had limited time to write. What what have you seen the impact of COVID on journal submission? Well, we started seeing interest in COVID right from the beginning. I actually went to several of the leaders of our societies, both NASPGAN and NASPGAN, and suggested that they may want to consider putting together some kind of overview of COVID and, and the pediatric gastroenterologist. And they got very excited about it and very quickly put together uh, an article, quickly meaning within about a week, week and a half. So I can tell you sometime around late March, early April, we had already four or five submissions of uh, manuscripts that we reviewed very quickly as rapid communications and got published uh, within a few days, really, that, you know, as you are probably aware, JPEGAN publishes ahead of print, 
within three to five business days of an acceptance, as long as all the authors have signed off on it. That sometimes holds it up. And then it got published. I think they all got published together in a June issue because it always takes a couple months to get the paper uh, print, but, but they were online already by uh, sometime in April. And so that was very exciting. And and then since then, um, we created a COVID uh, section on the website. So any articles that were accepted and published ended up being listed on the COVID website. I think NASPGAN also had one on their uh, homepage so that NASPGAN members could, or anybody could go to NASPGAN.org and find uh, COVID publications there. And we're still getting intermittently getting uh, submissions on children getting the MICS disorder with COVID. So I think it's it's had an impact both in the sense that uh, there have been a number of publications, uh, there have been several studies now. Most of those are retrospective looking at how COVID's affected pediatric patients. Sometimes with, you know, there's, a, I think, a recent paper we accepted on transplant and COVID and there have been a few on IBD and COVID, and there have been several on how has COVID affected the way we practice. So there's been a couple papers on telehealth uh, and the impact of COVID on using telehealth, uh, which has been big all over. I mean, at our own hospital, we before COVID, we had about a 3 or 4% telehealth practice. And within a couple of months of COVID, we were up to 70 or 80% of our patients, of our patient visits were by telehealth. So it made a huge impact. Over the course of your tenure at JPGN, you've overseen some significant changes. You know, we, you briefly touched on sort of the idea of rapid communications, rapid time to, to publication. You have a, a rapid communication category of articles. You've introduced subsections of articles, uh, CME credit for reviewers and readers, um, and just this year, infographics. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the impetus for some of these changes and, and the impacts you've seen? So a lot of this started when I put in my application. The society was looking for what new or innovative ideas do you have that might help get this journal to a higher level. And I know one of the factors that has always been on everybody's mind is how do we get the impact factor to go up? Uh, the Europeans have always been hot on that idea. And so uh, David Bransky was the editor-in-chief of the European office at the time when I started. And we had many discussions about what can we do to improve the journal. And a lot of these ideas actually started around that time. I also took over from Eric Zubli, who had some of these things in mind as well. And so I had several ideas stemming from what he was contributing as well. But I think overall, these ideas were to help to encourage more submissions to our journal. Uh, rapid communications hasn't been used as much as I thought it would be, but I think Rapid communications has made a difference, and uh, there are some authors who have used it effectively in order to get their research information out there quickly. Um, there have been a couple of other authors who used it because they ha may have had a grant deadline, and if they could get another paper accepted uh, and published uh, quickly, it would look better on their grant. And so that was another way that it, it has been used. As I mentioned earlier, getting peer reviewers for our submissions uh, can be problematic. And I think getting CME for the reviewers was a very helpful uh, carrot that the reviewers have enjoyed. I've had several reviewers say, you know, I really like the idea that I can get CME for doing these reviews and I can't attend meetings right now. So especially during COVID, that doing these reviews has been very helpful for them because they get CME credit. The CME and MOC for the readership that comes from the CME articles 
has been also a tremendous benefit for our membership. And uh, Sandeep Gupta, who's now the editor-in-chief, played a huge role in getting those through the paperwork that they needed to get done in order to get those approved. And I think those also have stimulated interest. I think the bottom line is that all of these, including now the infographics, really have helped provide the, the concept that our members get benefit or drive benefit from our journal, from what's published, I should say now from our journals. And by increasing the impact factor, we get better publications in there. We have more authors interested in publishing there. And uh, it gives the journal both more visibility as, as well as more prominence in our field. Our impact factor, which is around three, is one of the highest impact factors of any pediatric subspecialty journal. Uh, there's only a few subspecialties, psychiatry and infectious disease, who have journals with higher impact factors than we do. So we're all very proud of that. You should be. You mentioned before about needing to or wanting to attract reviewers. Uh, this is a great opportunity to tell our listeners how they can go about letting JPGN know that they're interested in reviewing articles. To be a reviewer on JPGN or JPGN Reports, there's a place on the website you can click on for reviewer information, and you can sign up for that. You can also just send an email to either the JPGN Reports or JPGN Office and can be added that way. And you really just have to leave your name and email contact information. You can, and we encourage you to also add in some areas of interest because that way we know what kind of manuscripts to direct to different reviewers. We encourage especially young graduates from programs to uh, join and, and learn how to review and then participate in the peer review process. That's such an important part of our subspecialty, really. If I can add one more thing to that, I've put the link in several of the NASPGAN newsletters, and I'm about to put another one in there. So if you look at the NASPGAN newsletter, there's a section on JPEGAN and JPEGAN reports, a little corner in the newsletter each, not each time, but generally. And we often will put in there the links for uh, how to be a reviewer. Great. And if you send us that link, we'll put it in our show notes for this podcast too. Okay. Yeah. And it's a good opportunity for a young investigator to join and become a reviewer and understand the process of accepting or critiquing a manuscript. So I'm definitely interested in that. So what general advice do you have for fellows or early career researchers when it comes to getting their work published? Well, I think a young investigator or clinician uh, who would like to publish should aim high. Be careful on how you write. Remember we talked earlier about how word choice can be so important. I'm going to use this quote in, in a different sense, but what I was always told is you're never, never going to get a grant you don't apply for, and it's the same with a paper. You're not going to get published unless you submit something for publication. And the other quote you'll hear often is every paper has a home. It may not be accepted in our journal, but there will be some place where you can get published. Publishing is important when you're trying to develop a career because it gets your name out there and it gets you visible. It also helps bring you into a community of uh, investigators or academicians or clinicians with similar interests. So it's, it's very helpful from that sense. It also may get you on some kind of speaker platform for the NASPEN meeting, for example, because people will say, hey, he published in this on uh, polyps and IBD, and let's have him give a talk about that. So there's a lot of opportunity that comes from publishing as well. 
And just to follow up on that question, what are the most common or preventable mistakes that you've noticed that are made by authors either during submitting their manuscripts or after submitting their manuscripts um, that we can all learn from and avoid doing? Well, the most important thing that authors need to do is to follow the instructions for authors. So when you go to the JPEGIN or JPEGIN Reports website, uh, it'll say for authors, and you click on that, and then you click on instructions for authors, and it's very um, specific about what you have to put into a manuscript before it's submitted. And at that point, it's really important to pay attention to details. You know, your, your abstract needs to be a certain length and structure. Your uh, main text of your, of your submission needs to be also of a certain length and structure. Your uh, tables and figures need to be placed in correct order. There should be, always put a cover letter explaining. It doesn't have to be long. It can be one or two paragraphs. But just to explain in a sentence or two what it is that you're trying to publish uh, or to communicate and why. Um, we do require that in, in anybody who submits a rapid communication because we want to know why do you think this deserves to be a rapid communication. I can tell you probably half the time when somebody submits a rapid communication, we'll send it back and say this does not deserve to be a rapid communication. We'd welcome this to be an original article. Please resubmit as that because a rapid communication is a lot of work. I mean, I take each of those and I contact reviewers directly and say you have three days to get back to me. Um, so we really, you know, we've had some turnaround within seven to ten days and be accepted and, and published, um, including sometimes a revision. So we, we do take those seriously. The other comment I'd make, by the way, is when a manuscript is sent back for revision, the authors need to really pay attention to what the reviewers have asked for. Because one of the mistakes that is sometimes made is that the authors will respond to the reviewers uh, by submitting a revision, but they don't really respond to the reviewers' uh, comments directly, and so uh, it's important that there is a direct response. And one of the things that uh, is often done is somebody will say, we recognize that this is a deficit in our uh, research, and we put this into limitations. And so that's just kind of a cop-out. You know, it may or may not work. It's better if you can give some rationale as to why uh, you're doing what you're doing. So recognizing the limitation in your study and explaining why there are limitations. Yeah. Those are those are really good tips, especially yeah. read the instructions. Yes. I always feel that that's, that's, you know, something that some undergrad professors in college might end up doing, you know, if you hand in the assignment without following the guidelines, it's an automatic zero or, it, you know, automatically get 10% off or whatever the, the, that right. is. Yeah, you got a rejection. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so thinking back over your your ten plus years now uh, as editor in chief, you know you've, you've rolled on to uh, JPG and Report, so you're still in in the same role. What's been the most rewarding part of your role as editor in chief, and what's been the most challenging? The rewarding is easy, it, and there's two pieces. One is the success of the journal, but the second, and I think the most important, is just being able to have a collegial relationship with our peers around the world. I, I just, I've so much enjoyed that. And to have the opportunity to work with our European colleagues closely, uh, with all the people through, from North America, we've had a wonderful group of associate editors and editorial board members, um, 
averaging somewhere in the 30 to 40 range in total. And it's just been a, a real pleasurable experience uh, to be able to work with all these people. And these are really leaders in the field who I think everybody respects each other. I very, very seldom had conflicts among our editorial board. And, you know, once in a while there's going to be differences of opinion, but that's fine. And, and, you know, the success of the journal then becomes a benefit for all of our members. And I think being able to have members recognize that our journal is here for them and uh, we're really trying to do the best we can to make it, make their journal as good as possible. I think that's been really, that's been a pleasure. Probably the second piece you were asking, what's been the most challenging? I mentioned a few already. I guess the other one I would mention is sometimes we get authors who are unhappy with decisions. And, you know, that can be a challenge and you have to justify it. I had advice from David Bransky when I first started. He said, the one thing I'll tell you is as editor-in-chief, you have to have very thick skin. And it's true. Uh, you know, occasionally people are not happy with what you tell them or what you decide to do. But, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking I really want the best I can do for this journal and, and, um, and have to try to be objective about it. So it's been great to hear your experience as editor-in-chief for JPGN. Looking back on your career so far, what has been the most valuable advice you've received and what general advice do you have for our listeners? Well, the best advice I would have is find a real balance, a life balance. We can all work seven days a week, 24 hours a day, but I think there's other things in life, and I think family and having time for yourself are important pieces of what I've learned throughout my career. I think from a career perspective, it's important to take advantage of opportunities as they come up. You can't say yes to everything. In fact, one of the things that has taken me my whole career to learn is to be able to say no. <laughs> but, you know, you have, I think using mentors is an important part of a career at all stages. You know, at my stage, my mentors are often my peers. I still have a couple of senior mentors I go to occasionally. To, you know, it's, it's not really mentoring, it's more friendly advice. But I think mentor relationships throughout your career can be helpful. And your mentors change throughout your career. And I think that's something to take advantage of. And then the last thing that I've appreciated throughout is teamwork. I think having a, a good cadre of peers and colleagues who uh, you can work with is uh, both rewarding and helpful throughout your career. That sounds like good advice. Thinking back to either you, those kind of near peer support people or people when you were earlier in your career, is there something that, that you still remember somebody telling you uh, in the way of advice that that actually guided what you ended up doing? Yeah, learn how to say no. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for saying yes to this today. <laughs> Um, this, this has been a great uh, chance to, to talk through your experiences uh, and your career. Um, do you have any final words for our listeners? Uh, yeah, I, I would say thank you to everybody for uh, giving me the opportunity to serve in the position as your editor-in-chief. It was truly a pleasure, and I'm still your editor-in-chief for JPKIN Reports, and so I feel I can continue for at least the next year and until somebody takes over that journal. But it's really been a pleasure and tremendous opportunity from many perspectives. 
That's great. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really, really appreciate your time. Well, that was a great uh, chance to talk to Dr. Hyman. I really appreciate how open he was with his experiences as uh, editor-in-chief and some of the challenges, but also some of what really appealed to him in the role and what motivated him to keep going. I think the key takeaway advice is if you want to be a published author, then submit papers, like actually do the work and read the instructions. Right, right. That's the one way to make sure that your your article at least gets considered. Right. And I really am considering now becoming a reviewer because that was great advice on how to become a reviewer and uh, I'm very interested in looking into it. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspagan Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspghan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the Naspagan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibilities of the hosts and guests and are subject to to change with advances in the field. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, bye for now. Stay safe, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.